This is an AMI podcast. You're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast with Chef Mary Mamalidi. I'm in Hong Kong and it's the Harry Crab Festival. And I'm with a few other journalists and half of them won't touch this exotic delicacy. And it was probably the best thing I had ever tasted. And it's only available during this lunar festival in November, six weeks of the year. There's even a black market for them. Like it's this insane thing that I had never heard of until I got there. You crack them open and it looks like sea urchin, but it's just oily, orange, delicious garbage. I have never tasted them since, but I will never forget them. There are so many different ways to experience taste memories. That's Amy Rosen. She's a food journalist, editor, and the author of five cookbooks, including her new cookbook, Kosher Style. Amy, thanks for coming on the show. I'm excited to be here. Okay, so my introduction to all things Amy Rosen was with my very first bite of your famous Rosen cinnamon buns. Aha. Uh-huh. When you had the shop. Yep. Honestly, best cinnamon buns to date that I have ever had. And for people that don't know you, Tell us a little bit about who Amy Rosen is and what led you to what you're doing today. Okay. Do you want the short version or the long version? (laughs) Uh, I'll give you the medium version. Okay. So always had an interest in writing and always had an interest in food. And, you know, growing up, I'd write short stories and I'd be chosen to read it in front of the class. So I was lucky that I knew from a young age that... I could write and I got great feedback and I enjoyed it. And this is hopefully something I can make a living at. At the same time, um, my family was just pretty into food. It was the Julia Child era. My mom would, you know, make sponge sugar desserts and escargot and would encourage us to get in the kitchen. So always enjoyed food, always enjoyed the kitchen. But then something happened in the 80s, in the late 80s, and her four kids were out of the house. And my mom went back to school. So overnight, the Captain Crunch and Pop-Tarts for dinner turned into tofutti ice cream, carob, demerara sugar. She became a dietitian, and it's the worst thing that ever happened to my family. So (laughs) fast forward, um, I graduate from university, and I decide I wanted to be a food writer. I want to be the next Joanne Cates, but Mm -hmm. I didn't how to cook with butter or cream because we would have like dry chicken breasts and all of this now. So <laughs> I went to Cordon Bleu so I could write about the basics and the mother sauces and just, I would come from an area of expertise and I would know what things were supposed to taste like and what I was eating. But, and then I actually, right out of school, for some weird reason, I got a cookbook deal and I, I published my first cookbook. However, I did not write about food. Besides that, I wrote about new technology and fashion and trends and homes, just everything except for food. But then about 10 years into my freelance career, uh, a few editors in the same week, I did a few little foodie things. And they said, you know, when you write about food, those are your best stories. You should specialize. And I said, but if I write about only food, all my outlets will dry up. And they said, no, you'll double your income. And they were correct. And then I started focusing on just food and travel writing. That's incredible. So if you if you had to trace back where your love of food came from, where would you mm-hmm. be able to pinpoint that one moment? Ooh, a moment. 
just kind of, um, I can't think of an exact moment, but I know that when I tasted something completely foreign and new to me at the time, that was really exciting. Like, what is this flavor? Like, what is mm -hmm. happening in my mouth? What is this texture? Like, it would just really make me happy. For sure, chocolate is a big thing in my life. A day does not go by without chocolate. And, you know, it doesn't have to be an ice cream sundae or anything, just a little square of lentil do. Um, but travel also became a big part of it. Food. I would, I would travel for the food. Those would be my biggest taste memories. You know what? I think if I'm tracing back maybe the first food and travel taste memory, it was driving to visit cousins in Washington. And uh, it's probably like seven or eight. I'm in the very back of the station wagon. And <laughs> that's where I was all the time. <laughs> right. Well, when you have three brothers, you're kind of ditched to the back. And uh, we pull over. And it's breakfast time. We got an early start and we're, we'd kind of made it to America, I think. And all of a sudden, my mom or dad comes out to the car with donuts. And I was like, what? We're allowed to have donuts for breakfast? <laughs> it was like dessert for breakfast. And that was it for me. That was it. That was the yeah. moment. That's my first kind of, wow, this is an amazing thing that's happening memory. Any others that stand out? Like, I mean, you've basically eating your way across the country. Oh my gosh. So there's just, okay. Like I was lucky enough years ago to be writing about Julia Child's former home in Provence. And I took a cooking class in her kitchen. She was gone by then, but it was, it was still maintained as her kitchen with the pegboard and all her dishes and everything. And here we are cooking um, just kind of tempura fried fresh zucchini blossoms with just fleur de sel uh, and then eating them under her famous huckleberry tree in her backyard in Provence with some rosé wine. Like I, oh I will, my gosh. you know, like I can't think of a more perfect moment. Oh, right? that's beautiful. But then let's say a few years later, I'm doing a story. I'm in Hong Kong and it's the hairy crab festival. And I'm with a few other journalists and half of them won't touch this exotic delicacy. And it was, probably the best thing I had ever tasted. It's these little... Okay, wait, is it really hairy? It's the legs are hairy. And it's only available during this lunar festival in November, six weeks of the year. There's even a black market for them. Like it's this insane thing that I had never heard of until I got there. And uh, you crack them open and it's like full of, it looks like sea urchin, but it's just oily, orange, delicious garbage. And I'm just like <laughs> sucking it back. People are repulsed. And I like my ears were hot from like, like passion for these hairy crabs. I <laughs> have never tasted them since, but I will never forget them. So th like, it's things like this, like it could be a sense of place. It could be the actual exotic ingredient. It could be you're in a good mood. It could be you're having a fun night with a guy like who knows, but there are so many different ways to experience taste memories. Right about now, I have some games. Weird food facts, true or false? Okay. This is when I said I think I needed that game show music. Da, 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 da. <laughs> that works. <laughs> Number one, creme fraiche was originally used to cure baldness. Hmm. I mean, ugh, they're always trying everything for baldness, but I'm going to say false. You're right. And it's so true. They are trying everything for boldness. <laughs> Creme fraiche has always been used as food. 
Number two, red and green peppers are the exact same vegetable, just at different stages of development. True. Yes. Ding, ding. Already two. And it's funny because I really dislike green pepper, but I really love red pepper. So, so do I. Something about the green just doesn't agree with me. Number three, the modern depiction of Santa Claus was created by Coca-Cola. Ooh, I've heard of this before. I'm going to say true. This is false. I mean, even though this is a common myth, he was depicted with his traditional red suit and white beard long before Coca-Cola burst into the scene. It's illegal to stomp grapes with your feet for wine in Europe. Okay. In current times, I'm going to say true. It's false. I actually made this one up. It's because it's not something that they should be doing. There's too many bacterial red flags running here. And I do know that they still do do this in Europe. It seems unnecessary. I've done it like for fun. You know, someone's like getting the thing. And, yeah. and it's just exhausting. Like you can stop for like five seconds before you think you're going to have a heart attack. It's really difficult. Okay, five. Hawaiian pizza was created in Ontario. I feel it was Canada for sure. I don't know if it was Ontario, but because you said Ontario, I'm going to say true. Yes, absolutely true. It was actually created by a restaurateur in 1962 in Chatham, Ontario. Nice. Baby carrots are just regular carrots that have been shaved down. Yes, they've been tumbled in a machine and they are just big woody carrots. True. Yes, correct. Tell us about the frozen Rosen's cinnamon buns. So I opened the bakery, um, I guess it was October of 2016. And with the idea that I had made this great recipe for cinnamon buns, I thought, and I, you know, I spent months kind of developing the recipe, having friends and family over. What about this dough? What about this filling? What about this glaze? What about this? What? And then finally, when I thought I had had them, I had everyone over. I'm like, what about these? And they said, you're done. This is it, right? Yeah. I felt good going into it. But I have no business experience. I've never had a restaurant or a bakery. But, you know, I asked all my chef friends and my baker friends for their advice. I asked other uh, food writers and editors and, and business people. I, I was just waiting for someone to tell me I shouldn't do this. And it was a terrible idea. No one said no. So I said yes. So <laughs> with doing just like one pop up one weekend at Baker and Scone, I was there for a week making enough dough that I thought would last for four days. Mm-hmm. I think I made enough dough to make over 600 buns. And then I realized when we opened up on that first Thursday, we we're going to do it over a long weekend that there is a lineup around the block. And again, no advertising or anything. It's just like through Instagram. So I realized within the first five minutes that I had to limit everyone to one bun or I wouldn't even make it through the first hour. So then I go to open up this bakery. Uh, Simon from Blackbird Bakery, he gave me my best business advice. He said, you need to do the second rise from frozen and you need a proofer and you need to get into wholesale. I was just getting all this great advice from everyone that really kind of saved the day. Because the second rise is from frozen, two things happen. Number one, it means instead of getting there at 3 a.m., you get there at 7 a.m. And the proofer, you know, steams and poofs it up and you just defrost the lot overnight. And so he's like, you'll save your sanity. You'll, you'll keep your staff happy. Good. The other thing it meant is I could ship frozen logs to wholesalers like Pusateras and McEwen's and they could bake them themselves. 
The other thing is it actually makes a better product if it's frozen first and then um, proofed and baked. And the final thing is I knew that it would work as a frozen product for the home user. So basically three months into having the bakery, I knew my long-term plan was to sell bake your own frozen frozen cinnamon buns. And so they launched last month. And we can find them Pusateris, right? Yeah, so exclusively Pusateris to start and then uh, they'll go wide in the new year. I'm Mary Mamaliti, and you're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast. Amy Rosen, cookbook author of Kosher Style, is here hanging out with us today. When you were writing Kosher Style, where did you draw inspiration from? Oh my gosh, everyone and everywhere, but mostly my two grandmothers, Bobby Fran and Bobby Ronnie, mm-hmm. my mom, um, my, my family, my extended family, my family friends who would have me over for the different Jewish holidays or, or Shabbat dinner, or just like for parties. And so some of my favorite party food is in the book too. Just it's my favorite foods and it's all of the classics too. Um, and it's also just how we eat today. Like there's a, a tofu quinoa green goddess bowl. So the only thing about this book that makes it a little different is that you won't find any pork, shellfish, or milk with meat dishes in it. And you take traditional dishes and you put your spin on it. Yeah, so there are certain traditional dishes, um, matzo ball soup, let's say. You're not gonna go crazy with matzo ball soup because people know what they want when it comes to matzo ball soup. They want it to be pure and clean and comforting. Like they don't want sriracha or like fried chicken skin in it or anything like that. So what I would do in a case like that, I would freshen it up a bit by adding some fresh parsley to the matzo balls, for instance. So that would be like a recipe I wouldn't touch at all. Or kichel, which is a kind of um, delicious, crispy cookie. Growing up, I thought it was a fried cookie. They were also called nothings, was their their (laughs) non-Yiddish name. When I was researching the recipe, what I found is what made it seem and crunch and taste fried was it's kind of full of oil and egg yolk. And it's just a very interesting sticky dough that you press into sugar and then you cut it into strips, you twist it and you just bake it. It's actually pretty easy. And so my twist on that was I was developing the recipe um, at the cottage and my little nieces were there and looking into their adorable eyes. I'm like, what would make these better? Sprinkles. So I added sprinkles to them. The rest of it is about like simiths, for instance, is... um, is an old school Jewish dish, which was boiled carrots, like really boiled to mushy and then raisins and prunes added. And it's like, ugh, I, I grew up like dreading eating this. <laughs> but some people love it for the taste memory and it's tradition. So what I did, beautiful whole roasted carrots brushed with honey and harissa. And then when they come out of the oven, we sprinkle on fresh pomegranate seeds and pistachio and some green onion. You know what I mean? So same, same, but different. Right. So I'm upping kind of the flavor, the texture, the color, um, just kind of bringing some of these things into a a new millennium. You did the same thing with your lemon meringue pie. I mean, lemon meringue is one of my favorite, all-time favorite desserts. And you did something a little differently with yours. 
So it is a kind of where lemon meringue pie meets macaroon. That's all I need to hear. It's I'm sold. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I've had a few other cookbooks and I've always included my lemon meringue pie with a little twist, but this is a bigger twist. Mm-hmm. I just love a delicious curd. You don't want to do too much with that. I love a delicious meringue. You, you don't want to fuss with that too much, but let's let's switch up the crust a little bit. Which is brilliant because it changes the flavor slightly, but it gives you that tropical feel. Love it. Exactly. More tropical, a little chewier, a little more decadent, or maybe, and you know, it's, it's, I don't remember, I don't think it's gluten-free, but it's, uh, is it? I can't, it's so funny. People are like, how do you make this? I'm like, I can't remember everything. I got to read the <laughs> recipe. I don't know if you notice that I have a recipe for, uh, cinnamon buns in the cookbook. These are pecan buns though. Everyone's like, oh my God, she put her recipe in the cookbook. And I'm like, I'm not a moron. That would destroy my business plan. So I did not, but I did an easy dough with an easy filling and it's the turn out of the pan kind of caramely pecan type bun as opposed to the traditional kind of poofed with the glaze kind of yeah, bun. Yeah. A lot of people are making those and loving those too. In fact, I was on your morning. So Ben um, Mulroney is a, a real fan of the buns. Like him and his family were regulars in the yeah. shop. And I, so I, I'm like, oh, I'm going to make the buns on TV with him. And he started stuffing his mouth. He couldn't speak anymore. <laughs> I'm kind of staring at the camera. And at the end of the segment, he hugs me. So <laughs> let's just say it's a good recipe. <laughs> it's a very good recipe. Well, I wanted to mention that one Every recipe in here is so visually appealing. And the one I actually have ready to go after this interview are the bagels. Ah. I've always been terrified to make bagels. I don't know why. It just, it to me, it felt like it was very labor intensive. And if you did one thing wrong, the whole thing would just come crashing down on you. But you've made me realize that that's not the case. I mean, baking for many people, including myself, like I... I've made a few good baking recipes, but I'm more of a cook than a baker. And so my baking recipes are purposefully very simple because I want people to have success. I don't want you to be waiting for yeast to rise and kneading things and resting things and kneading things and then have it fail in the end because then you just won't want to bake anymore. So these bagels... um, super easy to make, you know, a little bit of time because there's a few steps to them. But you like the satisfaction you get out of having your own freshly made bagels that look like you bought them from a a bagel store Mm -hmm. out of your own oven, eating them hot, serving them to your guests, your guests not believing you that you actually made them. And let's add to that making your own homemade cream cheese and let's add to that, making your own Lux. Like there's a picture of a sandwich in this book that I think epitomizes what I was trying to do with the book. It's a bagel Lux and cream cheese salad. And you make everything that this sandwich is made out of. And you bake your bagels as opposed to, I've, I've heard boil them. You do both. Boil them in honey oh, water. Okay. You put them on the baking sheet. You sprinkle with the seeds. You bake them. And when you boil, they're, they're supposed to float, correct? They'll come to the top. It'll work. You can, t- can you hear the panic in my voice already? <laughs> no. See, no, just be relaxed. Just know you're going to have success. It's going to be great. 
I have to say, like when you release a new cookbook, I know I've tested the recipes. I know other people have tested the recipes. They've been through edits. We're not missing ingredients. We're not missing steps. I, you know, you, you have to be pretty confident about this. But then you put it into the world and you are like, hmm, how are people going to screw this up, right? <laughs> I like to keep things simple. And I just will say why, like how you mentioned that everything looks so good. This was a crazy photo shoot. Um, my friend Michelle Rabin, who was a food stylist for the book, together with an assistant as well at Ryan, the photographer's studio, we cooked and baked the food fresh every day for five days in a row. We made and shot every single thing in the book, which is unheard of. It was 17 or 18 shots a day. When I worked at magazines, the norm would be two to three shots a day for a magazine. Like this is a cookbook. So it was insane and everything had to go right or we would have like everything would have gone off the rails, really. And it just worked out. And everyone ate well that week. <laughs> oh, my God. What a delicious week. Was there a happy accident recipe that made it into the cookbook? I wouldn't say for this. Uh, that happened because I was really, I kind of had my list together of what I knew I had to include because I wanted to make sure I included any possible Jewish themed recipe you could think of. I, I wanted like anyone who's Ashkenazi or grew up with these recipes, if they said gefilte fish, if they said moon cookies, if they said cabbage rolls or mm -hmm. beef I wanted to make sure all of that was in there. So by the time I got through out of through all of those, um, there wasn't time for happy accidents. <laughs> there wasn't space <laughs> for them. But I will say, dis I didn't have like paper recipes written down for me. I had to figure it out, you know, based on the basics. Like we kind of know how cabbage rolls work, so I'm kind of making my own sauce and just kind of defining how mine will work. Or the brisket. Okay, it's always kind of sweet and salty, but let's make it instead of um, the traditional can of this and jar of that, let's make it maple soy. You know, put, that's a big twist I put on that. Yeah. One of my Bubby Fran's most famous recipes was her delicious cabbage borscht. And it was in the Russian style, it was very sweet and sour, but very sweet. Okay. So I remember I was at my parents' house because I needed my family's taste buds because that was a real taste memory for all of us. And someone would come and taste it. No, too tomatoey, like too sour. And I, I'd add some brown sugar and this and that. And it was finally my dad, he tasted it. And he's like, you've done it. That's it. And that was just always the best feeling when I would kind of figure it out. And this is the exact taste we've been missing. And now we have it back in our lives. And that's what the book is about. You started with the traditional recipe and converting those. Did you have actual measurements? Because with Italian nonas, what happens to us is it's usually a handful of this and a wine glass of that. Right. No one gave me a recipe that was written down. However, I will say the internet is very helpful because you can find like uh, poppy seed cookies and then, well, I like, or, or rogalach or babka, and you can have the basis of a recipe. So you're not starting from scratch. But you, you know, you definitely are going to make it your own by switching it up a lot and adding your own fillings. And Absolutely. So what do you want people to take away from your cookbook? I want them to take it home and I want them to cook from it. 
and I want them to share the recipes that they have made with their family and friends and just bask in the feedback of saying, oh my God, this is the best meal I've ever had. I want <laughs> I you to feel that. proud about what you've made. I want people to feel confident about cooking in the kitchen again. I want people not to be afraid to have large groups of people over. And that's why I simplify it. I want to turn non-cooks into cooks. And I've seen it happen. My, mm-hmm. I had a roommate for four years. She didn't cook a thing. Then she, you know, I would always cook for her. Then her boyfriends would cook for her. Her mom cooked for her her whole life. That's why she didn't, she wasn't allowed in the kitchen. So it wasn't exactly her fault. But then she got married. She had kids and she learned that she had to start cooking. P.S. She's one of the best cooks I know now. So anyone can become a cook at any age. When people say they can't cook, I strongly disagree. I say, number one, you don't want to cook. That's different. Because if you can read, you can cook. Do you have a signature dish or one of your go-tos that a recipe that you could share with us? I'm always just creating new recipes. So I don't really have a go-to. But if I really think about it, what's the one recipe I make the most if I'm just like, hungry or I know kids are going to be here or I need something fast and I know I have the ingredients is my angel hair lemon pasta and that's from like three cookbooks ago and it's just angel hair pasta butter chicken broth and lemon juice and it's self-saucing that sounds good you break up the angel hair pasta you toss it in the melted butter in the pot you cover with chicken stock in about eight to 10 minutes, it's all cooked down and saucy and the pasta is cooked within the chicken broth. And then you squeeze in fresh lemon juice and it's delicious. And then obviously cinnamon buns. <laughs> I mean, kind of goes without saying, but there we are. I like to ask all my guests to share a little kitchen confession with us. Do you got anything? Well, something recently happened that I, I found pretty funny, actually. Um, I was developing recipes for uh, food and drink magazine, which I, I do a lot. And it's for advance. It's for next summer. And it was going to be an East Coast feast. And it is. I handed it in. They shot it. So everything's all good now. Don't worry. But I wanted to go really traditional. And I'd been to Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. And I discovered some recipes there a few years ago that... Uh, are super traditional. In fact, if you go out of the the borders of that town, you will never taste a couple of these things anywhere else in the world. And one of them was called Rappy Pie. And what it is, is about 10 pounds of potatoes, peeled and shredded, put in in a pillowcase, all the water taken out so that it's dry, dry, dry. Then you reconstitute it with just, you put a chicken in a pot, you boil the chicken, you add stock and you add the chicken back to it. And then you bake this thing, stir it all together. So it's like a slurry. Okay. And you bake it for like four hours. Okay. And it comes out and it looks like vomit. And, um, but it's tradition. And then you, mm-hmm. you, you drizzle it with, uh, with molasses of all things. So it's quite tasty. Okay. But kind of but kind of bland. So I was testing recipes at my parents' cottage this summer to do this big feast. And in all my years of recipe developing, this was the one that everyone was absolutely not. This is 
terrible. This looks terrible. Like they didn't even want to eat it. So I'm like, I think it's pretty good. I just need more salt. And they're like, no, like just throw it out. It's all. I'm like, you guys are being regionally insensitive and we have to learn about other cultures. And they're just like, it yeah. just doesn't taste good. Like, I don't know if you made it right, but it's terrible. I don't know if you it made it right. So anyhow, so I handed all the other recipes, plus this one with Oda caveat to my editor mm -hmm. and uh I was just like listen this was not a hit with the family <laughs> and uh she's like oh it doesn't look very good either I said I'm gonna think of a substitute recipe for this but before my mom knew I had done that yeah she actually texted me and she's like listen this could be a career killer <laughs> I'm asking you one more time like I was laughing dramatic so <laughs> like career killer jeez <laughs> potatoes and chicken summer down marcia my god so. <laughs> oh that's hilarious thank you for that and thank you for sharing it and if listeners want to reach out for more information follow you along ask you anything where can they find you how can they find you and purchase your book kosher style the book's available in bookstores everywhere and online at amazon and and indigo chapters all of that and you can find my website is amyrosen.com or I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Amy R. Rosen. It's that time. We've reached the end of another show. Be sure to visit kitchenconfession.com for more recipes and foodie finds. I'd like to thank producer and editor Matt Agnew. And I'm Mary Mammoliti. See you at the next episode. 